So welcome to Reverb, everyone. I'm Calvin Pollock. I'm joined by my co-producer, Ben Williams. Ben, how's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. And we are thrilled to be joined today by our good friend, colleague, and former Reverb producer, Ryan Mitchell. Ryan, welcome back to Reverb. It's great to be back, Calvin. Thank you for asking me to be here. So Ryan is riding the wave right now of having just defended his dissertation uh, entitled Private Parts, Public Selves, The Co-Construction of Safe Sex Before the Discovery of HIV. And this dissertation though historical in nature, is highly relevant to our current context. So on this show, we were hoping to unpack some of the theoretical concepts in this work and think together about how it might relate to the current coronavirus pandemic. Before we jump in, I wanted to read just a short quote from the abstract uh, for Ryan's dissertation, which I think captures some of the significance of it. So it, it says here, that the project reconstructs three non-medical sites, the gay press, the sexual body itself, and gay bathhouses, that helped gay men develop adaptive, comprehensive strategies for preventing the spread of AIDS. So, Ryan, do you think you could briefly overview this work and just tell us a little bit how it fits into your broader research interests and rhetoric? Sure. So... Most generally, I'm interested in how everyday community people respond to and then act in light of large-scale mortal public health controversies and crises. And what that means for me is that I am particularly interested in how people deploy alternative types of knowledges to stabilize the controversies that ensue from large-scale biomedical crises. So this means that I'm looking toward, as it says in the abstract, I'm looking fundamentally to alternative spaces where people come together to develop often collaboratively innovative and in quite, in many cases, ingenuitive um, strategies for both protecting their own health and developing community-wide protocols for mitigating some of the more dangerous, disastrous effects of um, biomedical crisis. So the AIDS crisis is, I think, one of the most obvious, but one of the most fruitful case studies for thinking about how these theoretical interests or kind of general interests crystallize and condense in actual practice. My dissertation localizes itself within the first for maybe five years of the AIDS crisis from 1981 to 1985-ish to conceptualize and consider how members of the most at-risk community for AIDS, so urban gay men, responded to the problem of AIDS transmission and AIDS death without knowing what its precise cause was or its precise etiological agent was. So HIV wasn't discovered until 1984, which was three years after the initial cases of AIDS had been identified among what are typically called the four H's. So homosexuals, Haitian immigrants, intravenous drug users or heroin users, and hemophiliacs. And so over this time period of three years, no one actually knew what was causing immune systems to deteriorate at such an alarming rate. And so what I was interested in is how were non-expert gay men deploying experiential community and local knowledges to set up ad hoc speculative interventions that would allow them to deal with the problem of the AIDS without really any guidance from leading medical and public health officials. Nice, yeah. And I think that that aspect of the uncertainty in the early years of the AIDS crisis really gets at what I see as beautifully rhetorical in this project, because what's going on here is a situation of uncertainty that requires collective strategies to survive fundamentally, but also to deliberate about new norms I wonder, as you take us through maybe some of the more hegemonic ways of talking about AIDS at the time, like I wonder if you could unpack that, because you and your work position the strategies that you see playing out in the gay community as in opposition to hegemonic biomedical discourse. So what did that discourse look like at the time, and what was it lacking, other than the fact that people didn't know the precise cause. Um, What were some of the other 
negative aspects of those hegemonic discourses. Yeah, there are a lot of really interesting things that you're saying, Kelvin, and there are a couple of things that I think are crucial to point out rhetorically as a way to frame what I hope this project is at least trying to capture and articulate through its analyses. Fundamentally, Political controversies, biomedical controversies, social controversies destabilize the status quo. And in that destabilization, there's often opportunities for reworking social hierarchies, kind of orthodox ways of being and acting in the world, and also destabilizing hierarchies of power. And biomedical controversies are fascinating because the major players involved, both the population and um, epidemiologists and scientists, all have a vested interest in trying to stabilize these controversies as quickly as possible. For members of the medical establishment, the stabilization often takes the form of what a sociologist of science, Thomas Jiren, talks about as boundary work or boundary maintenance, where Scientists go to great efforts to protect the um, the knowledge-making prestige and domains of science from any kind of critique which would destabilize the authority that is disproportionately given to um, medicine, scientific ways of thinking. And in turn, oftentimes communities that have always been either skeptical or on the sh- or gotten the short end of the stick from, various types of medicalizing renderings often seek to reveal and then mitigate what they see as the historic abuses of biomedical knowledge-making practices. And so what we can see happening in the period that I'm most interested in is this tension really beginning to play out in terms of what I talk about as gay community-produced AIDS prevention protocols are making up for the dearth and lack of scientific explanation for AIDS prevention and any type of robust risk reduction framework that were being developed by leading medical officials. So to get to your question about what the kinds of dominant medicalized approaches to AIDS was, is that fundamentally, in the absence of a, of a causal agent for AIDS, Medical professionals basically told members of high-risk groups that they needed to abstain from sexual activity. For gay men, this was in, this was particularly concerning because of long histories of anti-gay medical moralism. And the reason why this is such a provocative topic, especially at the moratorium that the CDC was calling for, was that epidemiologists fundamentally look for patterns as a way to identify transmission pathways for emerging epidemics. And these patterns can be taken from previous epidemics, or they can be taken from identifying um, risk groups that are particularly vulnerable to emerging um, biomedical pathogens. And what epidemiologists at the CDC were realizing very quickly was that sexually active urban gay men were becoming um, the primary target group for AIDS transmission cases. And so what they decided to do was say, you know what, what all these men have in common is the fact that they're engaging in same-sex sexual activity. So because we can't figure out what precisely is causing immune deficiency to occur, we're going to locate it in what we think are the behavioral causes of AIDS, which was gay sex. And so they said that, you know, until the time that we can identify the cause, gay men need to remain abstinent. They need to have a moratorium on queer sex. And what this does is it elevates kind of a decontextualized, impersonal, sterile biomedical assessment of containment above the cultural, economic, and material lived realities for people who are most vulnerable. And what it does is it creates what um, Priscilla Wald talks about as an outbreak narrative. And fundamentally, outbreak narratives are a way to story these patterns that epidemiologists are beginning to identify across populations that are presenting signs of emerging contagions. And like any narrative, right, they have to have characters. And the typical character that we see emerging here, the typical characters are the heroes, which are always cast as epidemiologists who are 
fearlessly going out and trying to identify the villain, which are the virus, which are viruses or various types of pathogens, which inevitably get personified as people who are sick or people who are ill with a contagion who get rendered as super spreaders. So in my case, um, sexually active gay men became super spreaders. And in particular, um, patient zero or gay tendu goss became the kind of focal interest for the super spreader who is responsible for introducing um, AIDS into gay male enclaves across the United States. But this is a very common strategy. So for syphilis, the syphilis outbreaks in the 19th century, we have sex workers becoming the super spreader. Typhoid Mary or Mary Mallon was the one for typhoid. And increasingly now, and thinking about parallels between super spreader narratives and what we're seeing with COVID, are Chinese nationals and the Chinese government are being scapegoated as being responsible for the spread of these illnesses. And the biggest issue with this fundamentally has to do with the fact that we end up focusing disproportionate amounts of attention on individual people who actually happen to be sick and really vulnerable. Like I said earlier, this removes any consideration of the social material constraints that are influencing their behavior. So for gay men, prolific gay sex was a very important marker of both their community's political autonomy and also a way for them to overcome internalized shame that had been and uh, placed on them by really every aspect of the society. So when the CDC was asking gay men to stop having sex, while it might seem easy enough and obvious, what they were fundamentally doing was asking them to give up what was at the time, and I think for a lot of queer people still is, one of the central features of their identity. And very quickly, both kind of medical practitioners on the ground and gay community members, especially the ones that I look at, recognized that this was, it was an unrealistic ask for them to claim, to, for them to ask that gay men remain celibate for what was around, I guess at the time would be three years before they discovered HIV. So what I was interested in was thinking about how they pushed against those very kind of totalizing, sterile, medicalized um, representations of disease containment by thinking of strategies for imagining potential ways of slowing the spread of an epidemic without without giving up what was fundamentally like a crucial part of gay identity formation. Yeah, I was wondering if you could uh, speak maybe a little bit more about ways that they're pushing against these totalizing and, and discursive practices in addition to uh, these alternative forms of knowledge that you talk about. So what are some of the discursive uh, counter narratives that they offer that are then circulated later by biomedical uh, discourses even today? Right. That's great. So I think um, w in one of the chapters that I focus on, I look at what was what's often regarded now to be the first comprehensive safe sex manual, which is called How to Have Sex in an Epidemic, One Approach, which was published by two non-expert gay men, uh, Michael Callan, who was um, a cabaret singer, and Richard Berkowitz, who was actually an S&M hustler. And what they fundamentally argued was that they that gay men could take specific behavioral steps to prevent the likelihood of coming in contact with even a still mysterious AIDS causal agent through in, what they talked about as interrupting fluid transmission. So creating barriers between possibly infected bodily fluids, semen, feces, urine, saliva, and internal membranes. So like the rectal membrane, various types of mucous membranes in the body, they ended up constructing a complete alternative protocol for hierarchizing risk based on potentiality of exposure to possibly contaminated seminal fluid or body fluids in general. And what we can see, honestly, if we look even today at the CDC, this approach to risk reduction, hierarchizing risk, thinking about contact, thinking about what sex acts potentiate exposure is what we now talk about as safe sex today. I think I should probably stress that it was in this manual that the concept of safe sex was even first articulated. They talked about it as medically safe sex, which in certain ways is 
a falsehood since their theory for AIDS transmission was not endorsed by any leading medical professionals. But they believed that the comprehensiveness and the working theory that was supporting their prevention strategies met the burden of proof for medical veracity. And so what we have now is rather than talking about it as medically safe sex, we talk about it as safe sex. And so we think of um, uses of various prophylactic devices like um, condoms, or we even think about relative risks between various sex acts, like the fact that anal sex is disproportionately conducive to the spread of various STIs versus oral sex, especially receiving oral sex is um, one of the le- one of the least risky sexual activities that someone can engage in. So in this instance, the discursive practices of Callan and Berkowitz were actually taken up as eventually through various kind of permutations and political workings, what we now talk about as just kind of best practices for safe sex in general. Yeah, I, I wanted to follow up on one particular concept that you talk about in Cowan and Berkowitz's How to Have Sex. You point out that they promote what you call intersubjective risk assessment, which I think is related to these safe sex practices and the ways that they've even been taken up by subsequent like CDC and other dominant medical discourses. But can you just explain intersubjective risk assessment and and how Callan and Berkowitz seek to foster it? Sure. So that question um, is going to take a little bit of unpacking because it it gets to what I argue is what's re- the most rhetorically compelling aspect of the two's argument, which is um, a rhetorical strategy that I identify as uh, the visceral imagination, which fundamentally is thinking about the capacity for vivid representations of internal membranes to trigger a collective process of visualizing and acting in light of um, bodily permeability. So what I was interested in and taking a lot of the work that's been done in theories of biopolitics and kind of critical medical studies about um, immunology constructing really strict divisions between self and other, sponsoring the idea that we do have a kind of pre-originary, contained, naturally perfect body that is made vulnerable to outside damaging forces and the immune system being the primary way that we protect ourselves from these invading others. So taking those theories and combining them with feminist and emerging rhetorical interests in viscerality as a site of both kind of bodily materiality and intense affective response. So um, Janelle Johnson has recently published work on what she talks about as visceral publics, which are largely communities of, of communities that form around shared concerns for um, vulnerability of borders, whether those are bodily borders or kind of national borders more broadly. And what she basically says is that whenever there is a breach to a border, that breach instigates intense feelings of anxiety, fear, and um, unsettlement that actually bring publics together to endeavor to kind of fortify and protect the, the boundaries that have been breached in the first place. And so what I was interested in was taking Johnson's conceptualization of visceral publics and thinking about how matters of sex, eroticism, desire, and intimacy kind of trouble the traditional formulation of self-other by expressly concerning myself with how sex actually invites others into our most intimate proximities by allowing them to enter into our bodies. And so what I was trying to argue with a concept of intersubjective risk assessment was that vivid descriptions of sex acts and internal membranes and the viscera more generally, when placed in the context of sexual discourses can actually generate a way of training people in various types of um, ethics of care by asking us to think about not just how our own bodies are made vulnerable through the act of sex, but how we also make people vulnerable when we have sex with them, creating a kind of imaginative 
swapping of places between sex partners. And what I saw this functioning as was a really interesting way of thinking about the distribution of accountability for risk reduction strategies. So rather than constantly being concerned with so with some super spreader is going to come in and infect me with a possibly deadly pathogen, what happens if instead I begin to think of myself as being possibly contagious? And what does that mean for the people that I'm going to have sex with? How can I visualize their own embodiment in a way that guides me to change my own behaviors, in particular, my behaviors around sex and sexuality? So it was thinking about an alternative way of thinking about disease transmission, which troubled or at least questioned the kind of dominant immunological logics that are um, typically, typically present whenever we're thinking about disease transmission. So central to your theory of visceral imagination is, you know, Deborah Hahi's notion of rhetorical vision, right? So I was hoping that you could maybe speak a little bit more about how this tool is deployed by those communities to not only constitute these visceral publics, but deployed in a way that it becomes productive to to narratives that allow for these alternative forms of knowledge to emerge. Yeah, no, thank you. I think so. Hahi's work on what she talks about as rhetorical vision is actually the enlivening of a very old and kind of familiar rhetorical tactic that Aristotle talks about as fantasia, which is the mental capacity or the mental faculty of visualizing absent or uncertain objects. So Hahi asks, how is it that words, rhetoric, language itself can actually conjure vivid, palpable mental representations of objects that aren't necessarily there? I was drawn to theories of rhetorical vision and fantasia because at the time that Kalan and Burgess were writing, an AIDS agent was invisible. And also, sex acts are largely invisible to the people partaking in them. So there's always needs to be a little bit of an imaginative jump between certain types of activities and their implications. And so what I found so productive about a rhetorical vision was that it provides a way of thinking about alternative ways of deliberating. And those ways of deliberating are fundamentally rooted in and rest upon a rhetor's capacity to vividly bring before the eyes of their audience what transmission pathways could actually look like. And so what I argue is that vivid representations of things like anal sex or things like fluid transmission that might occur during receptive oral sex actually sparked an imaginative process that allowed for sexually active gay men to imagine together what steps they could take to interrupt the flow of body fluids at a very kind of discrete local level. Um, and And I argue that 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 this strategy pulls it out of kind of totalizing, sterilized medical approaches that I was talking earlier, which recommended complete sexual abstinence, and instead allowed for a kind of harm reduction approach to AIDS prevention by thinking about various strategies that make visible the implications of health behavior across different interactions. Ryan, that's so thought-provoking. I think that the rhetorical vision aspect of your project like really gets at the difficult contingent situation that we're going through right now and and I do I do want to shift to talking about that a little bit as we continue to think through some of these ideas for me the lack of imagination about how diseases can travel I think is one of the biggest challenges at least that Americans are having in dealing with covid I think that like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in the news with protests that are demanding reopening. Even (laughs) one of the funniest things was this week, we just passed Mother's Day was over the weekend. And there were these like massive, it almost seemed to be like society breaking down at Red Lobster and Olive Garden uh, (laughs) in in parts of rural Pennsylvania. This was was, uh, spreading throughout the news that like, there were just these massive lines of people. People weren't social distancing. Um, and I wonder to what extent a lot of what we're seeing and the way that our society and our culture seems to be struggling to find solutions to this is a result of a lack of imagination about how the disease actually travels, what that looks like. And people just are 
kind of understanding it in a clinical way or they're right. not even thinking about it in a clinical way at all. And so it's not filtering into their everyday practice. Yeah. What do you think about that as like an interpretation of the situation? I think that that makes sense to me. I think that there are obviously it's, I think it's important for us to make kind of stark distinctions between the COVID-19 pandemic and the AIDS epidemic during my period right. in particular, the biggest distinction, but I think it's a distinction that plays a fundamental role in what you're talking about, has to do with the fact that when AIDS first occurred, the mortality rate was over 80%, and it was relatively isolated to groups of people that were already made deviant by dominant social logics. They were already excluded from the communities that um, defined what or the communities that define the kind of average American citizen. And so we already had the idea, at least in the popular imagination, the kind of normative popular imagination, that for whatever reason, the people who are contracting HIV AIDS somehow deserved it because of their behavior fell outside of the norms or regulations for um, citizenship and for health. What I see happening with COVID is that this logic of self-other, this logic of kind of contained healthy body and then um, invading outsider is made a little bit more difficult because of just how contagious COVID actually is. So as I'm sure you're seeing everywhere on the news, we're in an effort to really revitalize the economy lots of conservative pundits are trafficking in what are fundamentally eugenicist arguments about increasing herd immunity. And inside of that metaphor of herd immunity, what we can see is a lot of people assume by nature that they are in the herd because they have, for most of their life, never been cast outside of dominant scripts for what citizenship looks like. And so I think that they have a very difficult time picturing themselves as potentially being vulnerable to a disease because the standard narratives of disease that we have circulate as being the result of some type of social deviancy, which is why what we see right now happening is groups that have been racialized and minoritized by various economic and um, racist oppression systems are the ones who are the most affected in urban areas. So members of the Black community, members of the Indigenous communities on various reservations, older folks, people with disabilities, they're the ones who we've seen right now be the most vulnerable, and at least in the kind of dominant, hegemonic, violent cultural imaginaries that circulate today, they become almost, in certain ways, expendable victims because they've fallen at the lower rung of the kind of white supremacist social hierarchy. Now, I have a feeling that as people jump to lessen social distancing and we begin seeing COVID actually permeate member uh, groups and societies that were thought to be exempt from disease, so middle class, white, male bodies, once those groups start to get affected, I think that we're going to start seeing a very different type of panic emerge. Because the COVID epidemic has been largely localized to cities, I think that the average American who might live in the suburbs begins to think of himself, and I use the word himself very purposefully here, begins to think of himself as somehow immune from it, which is why we can have conspiracy theorists talk about inflated numbers. But very quickly, we're going to begin to see that that, that, that way of conceptualizing COVID is going to be no longer tenable. Um, but right now, I think we're trapped in a very bounded historical expectation of how diseases actually circulate. And we're seeing right now, unfortunately, like the poor, the racialized, the minoritized for various reasons, being the ones who are experiencing the fallout most severely right now. And that gives a sense of false security to those in power, which I think will deteriorate as we begin to see the catastrophic effects of lessening social distancing. Yeah, I think that's a really apt characterization of so much as what is happening. And, you know, as I was as I was preparing for the interview, I looked over Eric Kadzin's work, The Already Dead. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but, you know, in that, he talks a lot about these communities who are disproportionately affected by 
an example of a pandemic like this when we enter into a moment of crisis. And one of the quotes from the book, and I was hoping we could speak a bit about it, he says, every level of society is stabilized on an antiretroviral cocktail. Every person is safe like a diabetic on insulin. A solid remission, yes, but always with the droning threat of relapse, of collapse, if not catastrophe, echoing back to us from a far-off future or from the memory of a distant past. And so as I read this, I was thinking a lot about how there is so much rhetorical blindness on the part of those conservative pundits who are really through these uh, invocations of herd immunity condemning many to death. And I was wondering how we can push against that rhetorical blindness and as Kadzin does in The Already Dead, I think allow us to see what what is an already or always already existing moment of crisis for these communities who are in conditions of precarity and how we might deploy rhetorical vision in a moment like this. I think that's a beautiful quote. I haven't, I'm not familiar with that text, but I'm definitely going to have to look into it. I think that what I see happening fundamentally is we're seeing the fundamental affection of community in general. So thinking of communities as being somehow solid and protected from outside forces, or at least possibly protected from outside forces, pandemics disprove that fundamentally. What I think rhetorical vision can do, and why I think concepts like fantasia um, are so crucial, is that there is also an expressly moral dimension to the concept of fantasia that I think can be used as a way to mobilize a different types of ethics of care. So Gerard Hauser and Michelle Kennerly also talk about fantasy as a civic emotion that can give form to kind of diffuse ethical values. And one of the things I talk about in my work on the visceral imagination is that intersubjective risk assessment actually creates a distributed ethics of care that can facilitate intersubjective empathy in a way that is rooted in mutual imagination. And we see these things happening or playing out in material means. So in my, in the case of AIDS, condoms become one way of demonstrating to sex partners that you care about their health as much as you care about your own. We see this also happening, I think, contemporarily with wearing masks. One of the things I'm surprised by whenever I stop to think about it, it's just how quickly, at least I... <laughs> acclimated to the expectation that people just wear masks and that's now the sign of responsible citizenship. And so going into public places, expecting people to wear masks, it does create a sense of reassuring because what it signals is the fact that this person recognizes that they could be contagious to me. So they're present they're preventing the spread of aerosols through covering their face. Now, that being said, I also do want to note that certain groups of people are allowed to wear masks and face covers in a way that other groups aren't. So, I mean, I think that maybe you all have seen a lot of the reports of especially Black men being disproportionately targeted as criminals for wearing face masks. So we can't divorce these kind of material performances of care from their violent kind of supremacist context. But if we begin to think about things like wearing masks, like social distancing, like shelter in place as kind of creative forms of intimacy that can, through deliberate practice and through kind of self-reflexive imagination, demonstrate to other people that you're taking an active interest in their own well-being, then I believe that we might have opportunities to reorient the ways that we're understanding how to approach these types of pandemics, recognizing that quite literally wearing a mask is a signal to someone else that you recognize the fact that you could be contaminating people around you with an invisible deadly disease. And that not only reminds people of the existence of the disease, but it also reminds them of the steps that we can all take at individual levels. And honestly, quite simple steps we can take to create conditions for mitigating some of the more extreme implications of that disease itself. Ryan, I really appreciate you pointing us to the sort of rhetoricality of wearing masks and social distancing and these other practices that are fundamentally ways of showing that you're a responsible citizen in a crisis like this. And I wonder, because I think that points us towards glimmers of hope in 
a terrifying, awful situation. I wonder if you've seen any other instances that you would characterize, at least preliminarily, as um, visceral imagination being deployed to help people understand either best practices they ought to deploy or even policy measures that we should all get behind to mitigate a crisis like this, whether in writing or in other modalities of rhetoric that you've seen during this crisis? Thank you. I do want to say um, in response to that question, though, that while I think that wearing masks is a sign of uh, different types of civic engagement and intimacy, it's no, it's not a um, solution. It's not to, a policy it's solution. Not a solu- yeah, exactly. It's not a solution to fundamentally what is negligent what is negligent policy. So this is like largely a last ditch effort in order to make up for a completely inept uh, political response to this crisis that needs to be addressed at not just an individual behavioral level, because there also becomes a concern that I have where if we focus too much on individuals displaying their ability to participate in responsible modes of disease pre- disease prevention, then we're going to increasingly stigmatize folks who, for whatever reason, don't um, actually participate in kind of outward displays of these uh, ethics of care, which I think is, again, <laughs> distracting away from the fact that these types of pandemics need to be yeah, addressed, addressed at a systemic level. Um, but going back to your question about seeing other manifestations of this, a morbid example of this are lockdowns surrounding nursing homes and the kind of public outcry that's been felt around the disproportionate amount of people who have been largely confined without, <laughs> without the ability to leave and without, I think, proper medical attention within um, nursing homes and really just left to die. It really draws attention to the fact that in certain ways, the most vulnerable members of our communities are placed into conditions which make them doubly vulnerable and unfortunately shield a lot of the implications from from view. So engaging in very graphic types of representations of death might be one way of getting people to take more seriously the fact that COVID-19 can indeed affect them and that they shouldn't be so quick to assume that they are going to be part of this super herd that is strong enough to overcome the damage caused by the coronavirus. Yeah, I wanted to bring in a, a really great example of what I, I think you're you're describing. There was a great article in the Washington Post by David Latt. Basically, he, he, he wrote a personal narrative of being on a ventilator that I found really powerful, in part because he ties it to an explicit policy critique and proposal. So I'll just read a couple parts of this. So the policy critique that he makes is he says, as a patient whose life was saved by a ventilator, I believe it is an outrage and an embarrassment that a nation as wealthy as ours is even discussing possible ventilator shortages. We need to make sure that every patient who needs a ventilator can get one so that as many of them as possible can survive. But the vast swath of this article is just him describing the experience of being placed on a ventilator, of of first getting the virus and then being placed on a ventilator. And there's this really visceral part where he writes, for those of us lucky enough to get off ventilators, our lives are not the same. For me, my lungs must rebuild their capacity. I experience breathlessness from even mild exertion. I used to run marathons. Now I can't walk across a room or up a flight of stairs without getting winded. I can't go around the block for fresh air unless my husband pushes me in a wheelchair. When I shower, I can't stand the entire time. I take breaks from standing to sit down on a plastic stool I have placed inside my bathtub. Being on the ventilator for almost a week damaged my vocal cords, and now my voice is extremely hoarse. My speech pathologist expressed optimism that the damage is not permanent. Only time will tell. I'm not complaining. I am incredibly grateful to be alive, and for that I have the ventilator to thank. But the rest of this piece is just really vivid descriptions of the the physical toll that this virus takes and that the treatment necessarily takes. And I think what it does is it gets us all to think seriously about what would happen if either ourselves or our loved ones got the virus. And I think it inspires action in that way. I agree completely. I think that I know that you've had um, 
Stephanie Larson on the show before to talk about her work with visceral counter publicity. And it seems to me that this is also a clear example of using visceral tactics as a way to provide alternative evidence for what the ultimate kind of trauma of this epidemic actually is. I mean, I think that one of the things that stands out to me immediately has to do with the fact that this writer is signaling a deep vulnerability and almost childlike state of helplessness as a result of coming in contact with this illness. And what it does is it makes us reflect on the kind of mundane things that we take for granted. So for instance, being able to take a shower and stand up, being able to walk around our blocks, these things become impossible. And by him inviting us into that process of feeling completely decimated by this illness, it does allow us to begin to imagine what that would be like for us. Now, what I might say is that these individual stories might need to start happening in aggregate as we have more people who are surviving or actually if we're as more people are surviving they can start writing first person testimonies but i've also seen very powerful accounts from medical service workers who talk about the heartbreaking realities of being around people who are dying from covid dying largely alone these horrible deaths from respiratory failure and all of these things i think should be done in a way that asks us to think about not just the kind of horror of that experience, but also thinking explicitly about the fact that there are many of us who could have been exposed and be invisible carriers or asymptomatic carriers of COVID, and we can kind of inflict that onto another person. Making sure that you, I think that making sure that we highlight the networked reality of contagion in a way that doesn't reinforce us-them distinctions, but instead talks about the fact that we're all kind of connected invisibly through the air that we breathe, through the ways that we're exposed to each other's various invisible parts, I think can help reorient the way that we're talking about this illness and prevention. Yeah, I think part of that reorientation process, as you were talking too, I was thinking about a recent article Sarah Lewis published in the New York Times in which she's talking about uh, something connected to her work, which is photography the absence of photographs of the scenes of hospitals. So we see very much throughout the popular imagination, the dissemination of images of caskets, mass graves, uh, morgue freezers popping up. But she talks about the absence of what it looks like inside a hospital. And I think in this case, what we see in the visceral imagination being used by people like David Latt really allows people to work through these networks of an ethics of care in a way that 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 mobilizes right and it allows us to be mobilized because we're able to see with greater clarity what this illness entails i think it's so difficult right now to actually envision that so i think your work is so powerful in speaking to much of what we see today yeah thank you ben that's really nice of you to say i think that what you're also pointing to is a kind of fundamental problem of thinking about diseases in general, which is the fact that they are invisible. And when they become pandemics, they be, they can become so big that it's just difficult to take in the magnitude of them. You know, I'm thinking a lot of work that's been contemporary work that's being done on the, on the role that magnitude has in creating a kind of shared concept of reality. And we're dealing with two very different scales of experience. We're dealing with the micro scale in terms of micropathogens. And then we're dealing with the macro scale of mass death. And these things become really difficult to comprehend because they're not, we can't localize them. We can't see them, which is why we have people on the right beginning to question whether or not the CDC is making up the numbers of people who have died from COVID because they can't conceptualize what it means to have tens of thousands of people die within the span of a month or two months. And so what I hope the visceral imagination allows us to do is think about an imaginative process which localizes and makes visible these various scales of 
disease transmission in a way that can stabilize the terms of deliberation for collective action around health concerns that demand mutual action by helping us picture microscopic entities like viruses, and then helping us begin to develop deliberate, focused, yet somehow speculative collaborative protocols for interrupting the potential that we could come in contact with this invisible agent. No, I love that. And I I think that this gets at what I see as the kind of radical policy implication of some of your work. And I, I mean, this is probably me taking it and running with it. So you don't have to co-sign any of this. But for me, <laughs> for me, like what I love about how you write about intersubjective risk assessment and how that's enacted in these practices, number one, it takes, so it takes, as you were just saying, something that is either so massive that we can't understand it, the scale of an epidemic or a pandemic, or is so, so minute that we can't understand it, the ways that pathogens travel. And it finds a middle space that makes it understandable and cognizable. But also what it does, I think, is it provides a really straightforward political argument for ensuring that everyone is taken care of in a, in a in a truly collective egalitarian way, whether that's economically, in terms of healthcare, in terms of housing, in terms of decarcerating. Given that you know prisons are right now are are just being ravaged by this disease, um, for me, this idea of intersubjective risk assessment, the radical potential of it is that we start to think, oh, like, I'm going to be affected. Like, I know that I, you know, I was raised in a culture that values individualism and, you know, getting what I can for myself and, um, you know, my own economic advancement. This is a situation where the health and stability and security of my fellow person, like, can very easily ping pong back and, affect my own well-being and my own security. And so it's in my self-interest to raise the floor for everyone. I, I'm not going to, as I say, I'm not going to ask you to fully co-sign that, but that's that's definitely one of the radical takeaways that, that I got out of reading your work. Thank you. And that would, it really would be lovely if that was kind of a reflective process that people were going to engage in now. I am also worried though that what we're seeing and what you're talking about I hear is also just having to reckon with who do who does our culture count as subjects, right? To have an intersubjective understanding of risk, we have to also have a common understanding of who constitutes a subject. And I think that as these as this disease is showing, there are certain people in the American cultural imaginary that are deemed to be more deserving of subject of subjecthood than others. And those are the people that are supposedly the who can the ones who can create herd immunity. And everyone who can't is, for whatever reason, possibly excluded from those types of policies. So I think that what this also shows is that we can't take for granted that what constitutes the subject is the same for every person. So thinking about the social labor that needs to go in to center the stories of the people that are most vulnerable, and then use those stories as a way to draw attention to the ways that groups are made vulnerable by existing social structures. I just have to say, I think there are some really interesting work in rhetorical theory that's addressing this problem right now. I mean, one of the things that really made me think about your your radical potential of this intersubjective risk assessment is um, Alison Rowland's book on um, zoetropes it's, um, that just came out through Ohio State University Press. And it does this really wonderful job thinking about how categories of life are imbued with humanhood or relegated to kind of bare life um, through various rhetorical tropologies. And I think that those, thinking about all, what are all of the tools of rhetoric that can be deployed to begin to think about anticipating and hopefully mitigating the damaging effects of existing uh, social hierarchies. Well, thank you for that recommendation. We will put that in the show notes. Ryan, anything else that you want to add to our discussion of COVID or anything else that you want to recommend to our readers? Um, the floor is yours. 
I understand that there is a huge impulse for people to begin seeking out correlates to our contemporary situation, but I don't think that we have very many that are at our disposal. Um, people look for polio, they look to polio, they look to Spanish flu, they look to the AIDS crisis as ways of thinking about ways of approaching this issue. Um, and what I think that we're seeing now is an un truly an unparalleled disruption to every f feature of our lives. And what I maybe a, a better place to look than procedural correlates between past pandemics and our contemporary one is actually looking to how looking to first person accounts of how people dealt with this at an individual level, because that I think gives us a better picture of what with what is within our locus of control, right? And what is within our capacity to actually change? How can we how can we change the way that we relate to people around us? How can we be more compassionate? Um, one of the things that I've been really interested in reading lately are accounts of being compassionate for people who supposedly break social distancing protocols. So one of the things that I've been thinking about in particular is a piece that I just read in the Atlantic by um, Julia Marcus, who works um, at Harvard, and she talks about what she calls quarantine fatigue, which is really just trying to come up with a way to be radically empathetic to people that we see as breaking these performances of responsible COVID mitigation and recognizing what we were talking about a little early in our conversation, which is the fact that this is a systemic problem, and we can't expect people to always make up for, uh, always pick up the slack of governmental responses. So what are ways to be less totalizing? And I think that the work that I've done on the AIDS epidemic and community response to the AIDS epidemic illustrates that even though there is always going to be risk, how much risk can someone tolerate in order to develop harm reduction strategies for dealing with pandemics that are creative, community-sustaining, and personally fulfilling. And I think that as we move into the next few months, when social distancing begins to become even more lax than it already has been, we're gonna begin noticing different ways to assess risk that are beyond just shelter in place. And I'm curious to see how we respond to those new, um, those new protocols and no, new procedures in ways that aren't uh, unnecessarily focused on blaming and shaming, but rather focused on empathy and collaboration and mutual support. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think we might think of that as uh, how to have forms of safe sociality. <laughs> In an epidemic. In an yes. epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, well, Ryan, thank, thank you so much. You've given us so much to think about and, and to read. We will post your 2019 article Decoupling Sex and Intimacy, the Role of Dissociation in Early AIDS Prevention Campaigns from Argumentation and Advocacy, as well as citations of all the other great stuff that you pointed us to. Thank you guys so much for this interview. I really appreciate you listening to me ramble on about this. Our show today was produced and edited by Ben Williams and Calvin Pollack. Reverb's co-producer is Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.